Hello and welcome, Guardians, to a very special episode of Loose Cannon. Today I will be reading the Lightfall Collector's Edition lore books. So the three books we have today are the Osiris booklet breakdown, the Callus uh, slash Keitel booklet, Beloved, and the Elsie Bray booklet, Bitter. Breakdown, page one. It's not that I disagree with the judgment call, Ophiuchus has said, and revolved gently on the spot. But you can't go easy on him. It's an evaluation, not an interrogation. Ikora did not give into the impulse to fold her arms this time. You know what I mean. Ikora sighed very softly. He was right, all things considered. I don't intend to, and I'm, well, aware that there's an equal helping of suspicion on me for not seeing through Savathun's deception. We didn't see through it. Ophiuchus's correction was firm as his earlier challenge. It was a complex series of failures that can't be laid on any one person. Ikora shook her head. She never could have impersonated him so successfully if Sagira was still alive. Loss echoed loudly. In that respect, I suppose Zivu Arath did her sister a favor, Ikora fi finished. Yes, it's sad. Something unsaid lingered there. But, Ikora prompted. But, Ophiuchus continued, you can't tell me you didn't think it too just for a moment, about bringing her shell back to the relic on Mars. There was a moment, just a breath where, I hoped, Ikora agreed. I shouldn't have. Hope doesn't often obey wisdom, Ophiuchus fixed her with his single, gimlet eye. Though he wasn't wrong, Ikora wasn't wholly interested in being generous to her failings. All of the hope in the world doesn't change facts. A relic of darkness is unlikely to be capable of restoring a ghost crafted largely of light. No matter how nice it would be, if Sagira could simply pick right back up with Osiris, wash away these last months just like that. Our problems never solved so easily, Oviaka said, not unkindly. He drifted close enough to the bump against Ikora's shoulder, just above the shimmer of her bond. Ikora steadied herself. Untrue. Evil Levante provides us perfectly fixable problems. A little whir of amusement. Shall we see if the witness is afraid of the dawning? The thought compelled an exchange of almost stifled laughter. Doubtful, Ikora amused. But the mental image was a good buoy. In any case, I'll speak with Osiris alone, although the records will be available to you. I'm sure you may spot something I've missed. Ophiuchus hummed a little more. You know, he may never be ready for the field again. He certainly wouldn't like to be told that, Ikora held up her hand before her ghost could answer. But one step at a time, field readiness assessment before we make any determination, the same way we would for any hidden agent who's come out of a dark place. Her mouth twisted, wry. Wouldn't it be nice if checking in on Osiris could be as simple as asking, Are you alright? Ha, Ophiuchus said, pessimism in a single syllable, never happen. Breakdown, pages 2 through 4. Subject, first debriefing with Osiris. Contextual notes. Osiris looks smaller than my memory of him. It's as if the version of him that Savathun played was based on our expectations. The larger-than-life man and the long shadow he's always cast. Or perhaps she played in an Osiris newly separated from Sagira, one who did not yet feel the weight of the lost had not been given the chance to. Now Osiris seems plainly human, in a way he never has. 
even at his most despairing, and I barely think I recognize him. But today, a familiar glimmer of his former self roused over the strong scent of the tea I made, and gave me a sort of patient, impatient look over the rim of the cup, as if to say he knows what I'm about and is going to do me the courtesy of not mentioning it. That's just as well. Osiris never has been one to sit down and openly talk about his feelings, and I doubt very much if this time in Savathun's possession will have changed that. Still, as I said to Ophiuchus, a shared pretext can go a very long way between those long familiar with each other. Transcript of Conversation Oh, if you're going to try to spare my feelings too, Ikora, I... It had crossed my mind to be polite to someone who's been held captive by her enemy for a year. Yes. Oh. That was unworthy of me. I. You're going to have to work harder than that to offend me, Osiris. Oh. Barely audible laugh. We shall see how things go. I'm assuming you want to talk about the intelligence I had gained? I. Yes. You haven't said much about what it is, only that you remember a little. I want to start from the last place you saw before you were kidnapped and establish the full chain of events. There was some fuzziness about when you were last you. Oh. Hmm. Pause. Deep breath. It was on Luna, the same place I lost. I. Sagira. Oh. But... That place of that was a place of Zivorath's power. It is muddled. After I left that place, I do not think I made it so very far from the Hellmouth. In truth, I was not thinking straight, if I was thinking at all. I. Do you remember meeting, perhaps not Savathun, but no agent of hers? Nothing beyond the Hellmouth that might, in retrospect, be attributed to her? Oh, nothing. At least I don't... Frustrated sigh. No, nothing that I can recall. I. If nothing else, knowing that you don't know is something. Oh, laughably little. A frown at the empty cup. He took the teapot, refilled both cups slowly. Oh, I wanted to blame you. Surely, I thought, should have seen... Surely, you. I. I certainly blamed myself. If anyone could have identified that you are not yourself, oh, my best student should have? I. Yes. Oh. Hmm. So, we have all paid for that hubris. I. And Savathun gains. Well, you are aware of the cost created by insufficient discernment of truth. Oh, yes, so I am. Long period of silence. Not a technical transcription fault. Oh, perhaps such blame is misplaced. After all, if she were discovered, what would Savathun have done in response? I, she might simply have moved up her plans to offer a bargain. Perhaps she would have known less of Vanguard operations. Perhaps you, I would never have been returned to us at, at all. Perhaps our guardians might have stormed her throne world regardless. After all, they are very motivated when new weapons and old friends are involved. 
The variables involved would give even a prediction engine difficulty. Oh. Hmm. Then perhaps you should not have made the bargain in the first place, Ikora. I. Osiris. Oh. Don't mistake my words for ill-guided martyrdom. That I am alive, and here now, is a gift I don't intend to waste. I. Then don't. Oh. But I am not wholly oblivious to the state of things in the city. People question me. Whatever cachet I maintained after my exile, whatever Savathun gained in my stead, it is all useless now. Oh. Sips tea. People should question their leaders, including the vanguard. But where lead leadership is not only challenged but also untrusted, then there is much room for expanding chaos, corruption even. I. I know. Believe me. I know. Silence. Oh. Do you trust me, Ikora? I. I'd like to say that I do. Perhaps it's better to say that I trust you, Osiris, but I still wonder if I trust my own perceptions. Oh. Good. Well, he's Osiris, Ophiuchus concluded. The pieces of his shell flexed one final time before settling into a place, compact as ever. I don't know what else we expected. Ikora compressed a smile and wrapped her hand around the small recorder. You joke, but... Ophiuchus played a thin touch of light across her curled fingers. You think he sounds too much like himself. Perhaps I'm being overly cautious, she opened her grasp, revealing us an empty palm first, then producing the recorder again to pass over to Ophiuchus. A pointless trick, but worth a moment of a smile. Perhaps I think too much of what will be perceived in a failure to be overly cautious. Ophiuchus word quietly, thoughtfully, an ounce of prevention and all that. Ikora breathed out a quiet sigh, as to expel her worries with it. Optics aside, I do worry about Osiris. Despite his many strengths, he is only human. Even a stone may be worn down in time, and people are not so resilient as stones. Ophiuchus, for once, did not argue with her logic. Breakdown, pages 5 through 7. Subject, Second Debriefing with Osiris. Contextual Notes Osiris and I spoke again, perhaps a week after the first conversation, in the same secure location, my office. It isn't the best solution. He is still not at his full strength, but the security concerns triumph, and he agreed with that. The tea was different. I tried to blend with chamomile, reasoning that there wasn't a single person in the tower who couldn't use an extra bit of calm. He took a mouthful of the chamomile tea and grimaced at me though I could not say if it was in judgment of the flavor or the intended effects. Regardless, I was not offended. I had something extra for Osiris this time. Segura's shell. It had been held in secure hidden storage due to the value of the attached memories, but in the course of Lin 357's assessment of the altars of reflection, I was assured his thoroughness had extracted anything we could possibly gain from it. So while the other artifacts have remained locked away in a secure vault, this one I brought to return to Osiris. I offered him Sagira's shell without any other indication of what I meant to accomplish. Osiris cradled her between his hands with utmost tenderness and his face. I wonder how I could have mistaken Sabathun for him. 
I wonder how I could have suspected the man before me. It seems clear now in retrospect, of course, with the one to hold up the side of the other. Sabathun had never spoken very much of Sagira's loss, and I had taken it for grief compressed, coping tied firmly down, not to be addressed. I had thought it was not my business to tell him how to grieve, not when Zevo Arath and then the Cabal Empire were knocking at our door with wrath and battering rams. Oh, but this... This is a grief too big for even a man of his caliber to change down. Other Notes of Relevance Transcripts abbreviated slightly. We spoke delicately of tactical matters for a few minutes, but did not approach the emotional issues after a certain point. Osiris's mind is as sharp as ever, and when we are not speaking close to the heart, he is analytical, if leaning to the pessimistic. Transcript of Conversation Oh, I assume you must have come to some conclusion then. I, what makes you say that? Oh, you would not have returned her to me if you doubted your course. I, no, I wouldn't have. Oh, hmm, I might have hoped your caution would outlast your emotion. I, the judgment call is still mine. In truth, it is highly improbable that Savathun would repeat the same trick twice, and besides that, she is dead. Oh, is she truly? I was told she had a ghost. I, Imaru, yes, he yet survives, but we have sequestered Savathun's body securely, and my hidden scraped the area for errant genetic material. Oh, that's no guarantee. I. This tactic worked in the Dark Age. It seems to hold. We have seen no evidence of a resurgence. Oh. Hmm. I wouldn't be so sure. She managed greater deceptions. I. The ghosts also don't think it's possible. With the precautions we've taken. A disintegration might be catastrophic to that cause. But keeping the body intact and inaccessible seems to work. Oh. The Dark Age was a long time ago. Who knows what innovations the Hive have brought to the ghosts. I. They still are ghosts. Oh. Are they? I. While we may distinguish between light bearers and guardians, there is no equivalent for ghosts, and a difference in nomenclature would hardly make much change to their capabilities. Oh. We must be prepared for a ploy we cannot see. Ikora, where does this confidence come from? When the Queen of Lies is the opponent. I. We, ha we do have an informant when it comes to the Hive. A conscientious objector. While, for obvious reasons I can't say more, we are not so direly inhibited when it comes to matters of the Lucent Hive's capabilities. Oh. Tell me when you are able. Ophiuchus was silent for some time after he had finished scanning the second report. Ikora didn't press, choosing instead to stare down at Osiris's empty cup and the cushion where he'd sat. It strikes me as ironic, Ophiuchus finally said finally, that the problem caused by Sagira's absence is one she would have been perfectly suited to solve. Ikora's mouth curved a complication of emotion in the bare shape of amusement. Paradoxical irony, yes. 
She fiddled with the audio recorder, marking it as sealed, no further changes. I still wonder at his reaction to Amaru and our method of preventing Savathun's resurrection. Hofiakis drifted over the low table, around the empty tea things. His shell plates moved in a ripple of discrete sections, suggesting a shrug. It sounded like fear to me. Quiet fear, perhaps. But fear all the same. I have rarely known Osiris to be truly afraid of anything, Ikora admitted. Once more, she felt as though she stood on unstable ground. And now, after over a year in Savathun's procession, Ophiuchus pressed. Ikora found she did not have the stomach to finish the thought, and so she let it pass by, into that twilight where things fade that were known but never spoken. Breakdown, pages 8 through 10. Subject, third debriefing with Osiris. Contextual Notes A week since the last debriefing, Osiris seemed in better spirits today. Perhaps there had been more time to unpack troubling things away. Perhaps, having Sagira's shell in hand, he was secure in knowing the worst blow had already fallen. There was one point in the conversation where he fell into self-reflection, murmuring. He did not look at me, and his voice was not steady. Somewhere deep in memory, perhaps whether it was his own or Sabathun's. For the most part, he was coherent, himself. But here, I wondered again if it was safe to let him back into the field, or if I could, in truth, forbid him. Transcriptive Conversation Oh, I see you've changed teas again. I, And I saw the face you made at the chamomile. Oh, you might have chosen a better blend last time. I. I can brew that instead, if you'd rather. Oh. You had more questions, didn't you? Ask already. I. Yes. I want to know about what you remember from the last year. Anything could be important, and you implied... Oh. I remember what I, I implied. I remember. She kept some sort of connection to me. To rely on my experiences and memories, you see. Most of the time, I was delirious and lost in darkness. Very occasionally, I caught glimpses. I. Glimpses? Oh. Yes, of her. Of her thoughts or feelings. Knowledge that surely would compromise a god of secrets. So it cannot have been intended. Something must have gone awry in her plans and would account for the scattered nature of that which I recall. I. There are any number of things it could be attributed to. The influence of darkness, the Nezarek relics, the intrusion of Zevareth's forces during the ritual might have disrupted Savathun's influence. Or perhaps her death and resurrection might have had some effect on you. Oh. Hmm. Debating the reasons does not interest me. The data does. We have thought Neptune to be a dead end. A hope that was never realized. But she knew something about it, or perhaps something on it, which brought her power. Some deception or hidden truth, some bluff that she had held uncalled against the witness and its disciples. Oh, sips tea. Though my senses were darkened, that much was clear through the murk of her throne world. There was a secret she kept veiled, even to the last. Oh, sighs. I do not fully understand what I saw. And for a human to understand a hive mind, 
How many legends of Katabasis do we have, Ikora? I. We currently have dozens of stories about descending to the realms of the dead, though research has indicated many more must have existed. Lost in the layers of human history we will never lay eyes on. Mathematically, there were likely hundreds. I. Pauses. Inanna and Dumazid, and Jeshtanana, Orpheus and Eurydice, Izanagi and Izanami, to name a few. Gods and goddesses, mortal and immortal lovers, always seeking to descend and return with the lost. Oh. And neither the lost nor those who search for them were ever returned the same. I. Is that how you think of yourself? Oh. Scoffs. Do I sound that dire? All guardians, all light bearers have done as much. But others, well, I wonder, do our former enemies have similar stories? I. What exactly are you getting at? Oh. Frequently, the underworld, or those realms beyond mortal existence, possess wisdom the living do not. What, then, is knowledge from a dead hive god vested in deception? Long pause. I. So, Neptune and secrets. Oh. And Anna. I. What is it? Oh. A thought, an echo of one. The return from the underworld, and Anna cast off her veil. It makes sense. I did not understand when I first felt clutching whispers, carrying wisdom away from Kerr when she strode into the sunlight again. Osiris murmuring, self-directed. See initial notes. Oh. Focusing. Clears throat. Ikora, the witness. I do not say this lately, but it made her wary. Not in the way that she might have been of guardians, who storm blazing into battle with power and conviction and no restraints. I still feel it, her concern. Though I can give you no proof, and concern is exactly the type of thing she would lay contingency plans for. I. I understand. I never would have thought that there was anything that could scare a hive queen. It's worrying. Of course it's worrying. He as much said Savathun was scared of the witness. Ikora and Ophiuchus did not look at each other. The shared feeling resonated in the gap between them, tremulously tangible. And if he had that close of a connection, Savathun could have left one of those contingency plans in him. Ophiuchus said finally, We both want to trust him but there's no guarantee that Neptune is anything other than a trap. Ikora linked her hands behind her back, squaring her shoulders. If we assume Osiris stole the knowledge unwitnessed, then it is a treasure, a secret that may bring us some useful scraps. If we assume she gave knowledge to him as bait, then we still know Savathun had some interest there, if not an outright presence. But why Neptune? Guardians have been there before and found nothing. Ophiuchus word emphatically, with a thinking processing noise. Did we steal Osiris back, or was he given to plant the seed of a trap on Neptune? With all the effort we went to, Ikora shook her head. And yet, mounting a guard that makes which is guarded seem even more valuable? That too might have been a ploy. Then we were right back where we started. Ophiuchus swung back and forth in the air for a few moments. Breakdown, pages 11 through 12.
Subject, fourth debriefing with Osiris. Contextual notes. This is not my finest moment. Transcript of conversation. Oh, what, no tea this time? I, Osiris. Oh, the look on your face does not reassure. I, pauses, clunk of teapot. Are you all right? Oh, of course not. You might ask a more sensible question. I, fine, then let me start by saying you are exceedingly capable at the best of times, and more to the point, well-versed in holding together throughout the impossible. So I must ask, are you and Saint harmonious? Oh, it is fine. Pauses. Perhaps fine is inadequate. We have talked. We continue to talk. His was the first face I saw when I woke, and for that I am glad. I. Good. When she was wearing your face, Savathun was distant with everyone to an extent. We took it at the time for withdrawal ascribable to grief. Saint mentioned he had tried to reach out with limited success. Oh, I remember seeing him through her eyes. I tried to call out, but he was distant. Perhaps it's for the best I cannot recall more. Pauses. Recovering himself, a brief shadow. Physiological signs of stress. Teacup, rattling. Rhythm, mimetic, innocuous? I, Osiris, what you're experiencing is normal. O, scoffs. You speak with many who return lightless from hive captivity, do you? I, what I mean is that whatever you are pressing down, and I think I know you well enough to know that there is more than I have seen, it is normal to feel, and not a personal failing, nor does it make you less of yourself. O, Am I to understand that this uselessness is something you expect? I. You are still Osiris. Oh. Not to be allowed to fade into obscurity as a dour old man, hmm? I. Is that what you want? I certainly don't think it applies. Oh. I do not think I have ever truly felt my age before. It is disconcerting. Ikora, will you send agents to Neptune to look? I. Many are still deployed, but... Yes, as soon as I can justify the resources. Oh. Hmm. I. It isn't that I don't believe you. Oh. I did not say you didn't. I. If you remember anything else in the meantime. Oh. Of course. Anything to help you justify the resources. Is... Yikes, that didn't go well, better or worse than I told you so. Ikora gave Ophiuchus a firm, meaningful stare, but it was lost on him as he was otherwise occupied with the records. Neither is required, she said. In any case, none of our telemetry has ever returned anything helpful regarding Neptune. Whatever Golden Age plans were made for the planet, they never reached fruition. Some place so innocuous would be the perfect place to hide something, wouldn't it? Ophiuchus had a sort of innocent pointedness about his tone. It's almost too innocuous, so little interesting telemetry. You didn't seem convinced Neptune might be anything but a trap last time we spoke about it. What changed? Your opinion, Ophiuchus said promptly. 
Among the rest of the data, there's one other strangeness I wanted to draw your attention to. Only one? Amusement colored his tone. I went back over the transcripts. Specifically, Osiris' reference to Inanna. I did a little research, and per the stories I have, Inanna never left the underworld of her own recognizance. Her life was taken back by the other gods. Well, he wasn't entirely wrong either. It was just strange. Ikora tilted her head slightly, eyes focused with the distance of thought. I don't know how much the details matter, she said slowly. But it interests me that he fixed on Inanna, after I mentioned her. I doubt ancient earth myths are the practical highest priority right now for him, or for any of us. All true, Ophiuchus said, and fell silent. The ghost's doubt remained tangible, braided alongside Ikora's. Breakdown. Page 13. Subject. Conclusions about Osiris. I've been over the logs of our conversations several times, and I still can't come to a solid conclusion on the correct course of action. Osiris acts like any person might when struck with incalculable grief and trauma. Sometimes himself, and other times distant, sometimes reserved, and then inclined to argue just as quickly. He is self-aware, at least, but in my experience, the self-aware often grow frustrated quickly if they are unable to resolve that which they are struggling against. He no longer has light, nor a companion to pull him from danger and temper his most reckless instincts. This alone would make him a danger to himself, if not others in the field. It is unclear if he is fully free from Sabathun's influence, and the question of Neptune remains outstanding. I have not yet received word from the hidden sent to sweep the most apparent locations. Clearing Osiris for field work carries its own risks. Besides the enumerated above, public perception that he is fully trusted and approved of may cause backlash, foolishness, or both. Will he chafe so much at being restricted that he will simply go on his own? If that's the case, it would be better to sanction his movements, if only so that he does not waste time concealing his presence from the vanguard. Oviacus has not been able to argue around a firmly reasoned position. It seems we are both stricken by doubt. We can little stand to lose Osiris's knowledge, and I would hate to lose his friendship. I suspect in the end, there will be little choice but to permit Osiris's free movement. That being said, delaying such a decision as long as possible to give him time to heal, to give us time to search, may be the best of several imperfect options. I am still worried. Beloved, page one. I am three. My father is pregnant again. The woman standing guard over his brood bower is not my mother. My father invites me to visit while he nurses her young, but I am afraid to pass her. Her tusks are huge. Ah, huge. She greets me kindly and gives me a scraping to scratch my father's hide. I do not understand where my mother has gone. In the stories, Atsha tells me, Mates stay together their whole lives, but Atya is a scion. Maybe things are different about mates that scions do not know. I go into the bower. I ask my father if my mother is dead. He draws me close. He asks me to sing to my new siblings. His belly is soft and strong, fat with the brood pouches, where the babies grow. I watch one climb to find his teeth. I know that mother and father mate. 
that mother gestates the young and delivers them to father's pouches, that father broods them until they are weaned. Acha taught me how the mother must stand guard while he is sessile and vulnerable. She must keep the other females away from him, lest he discard her offspring and take on the brood of another female. I asked my father if that is really true. Can a father choose to forsake his children? Of course, my father says. That's how you know that I love you. I could have turned you out of me, and I did not. He tickles me. I laugh. Beloved, page two. I am centuries old. I am beating an assassin to death. Their helmet splinters in my fists. Their taunt rings in my sinuses. You are a child in general's costume. None of the vision of your father. None of the drive or strength of the one they call Dominus. You will not be remembered. My father put those words in the assassin's mouth. He put the blade in the assassin's hands. I have been stabbed in the ribcage, but the ribs of the cabal are a closed vault. We evolved to face our enemy. I have been shot in the arm, but I wear armor, even in private. I have been shot in the hand, but I have another to make a fist. I break the assassin's skull as I broke my father's heart. I send the enactine blade back to him, as he will one day send it back to me. Beloved, page three. I am three. Something has gone wrong between the woman and my father. I slide on my greased belly through palace halls, pretending I am a whale kayak. Guards smile at me and I smile back, but I keep my ear pressed to the floor. Nearby, the woman bellows in his chambers. She says he has not kept his political promises to the ex-praetorate families that approved their match. He is so wounded, he says. Doesn't his luscious body delight her? Doesn't the right to fill his pouches with her young bring her joy? She says she is not a sexist and that this is not the era of lead. She worries about policy and external security, not his lusciousness. He complains that she does not make him happy. She says there is more to life than happiness. He disagrees. She calls him weak. He calls her a curse and a killer. She roars and strikes him. I gasp into the floor. It is the first time I have ever heard my father in pain. The guards are very still. Then there is a terrible sound. I am too young to understand it as the sound of a father opening his brood pouches. I do not want them anymore, my father, the emperor says quite softly. If you cannot love me, then how could they? You can find another male with open pouches, some barracks bow, but be sure I never know him. I will not have by blows. The large tusk woman screams in rage. She stampedes out past the guards, past me. Her hands are full of little things. Beloved, page four. I am 35 years old. I have just returned to the palace for my first appointment on the cruiser Adil Talol, showing our banner in the Sindhu marches. I saw no action. I feel like a fraud. The sheltered Princess Imperial, who never left the rails of her father's brood pouch. He demanded that Evocate General promote me to a staff position back home. She has refused. In a tantrum, Father throws a tremendous celebration to commemorate my return. The streets of Torabottle run pulpy with trampled fruit. 
The skies rain cloud fry stunned by fireworks. I escape my attendants and stand in a corner of the palace ballroom, drinking pollen water and pretending I am back in my fighter. Your name is a prayer for war, the Evocate General says. I snapped to attention. She laughs at me and offers a small harpoon of canapes and a cocktail with a middling-sized shrub. I decline, and she tisks. You should enjoy yourself. It's your party. Although we both know it's his party. My father named me for a star, I say. Nothing to do with war. Yes, but the star Keitel was named for a myth. Not an old homeworld myth, either. A myth from the Age of Sails, when we conquered the stars. Surely you know it, assuming that you've been briefed on the Oxa. The Odile Zenotaph Anarchive, sometimes Oxta, depending on how you construct the acronym. The alien oracle that led us to the graves of Ark. Must beware now, Oxa is a scion myth, and the scions are a sensitive topic. My father wants to free them from bondage. It claimed to record the story of the galaxy and to prophesize what may yet come. A black box for galactic civilizations, if you prefer it in pilot's terms. The Evocate General nods to the pin on my right pauldron. I am conscious of my shaved-down tusks, of the sores they left by the fighter's interface. The doomed and damned left the record of their downfall in the Oxa. Your star got its name from the oldest myths in that archive. And when your mother told your father that story, the star became your name. A prayer that all will go as it must, and the way it must go is struggle. Ayat. Not a word in Ulurant or any other cabal tongue. But Keitel means something else. Yes, it may not always go as it needs to go. A good name for the soldier. A strange name for a daughter, I say. Your father chose it for your mother's sake, out of love. I remain at attention. I do not look at her. So she's dead. The Evocate General looks sharply at me. I can tell by the motion of her cocktail shrub in the edge of my vision. He never told you? No. Well, she sounds genuinely shocked. Then it is not my place. Evocate General, a junior pilot should not address her senior officer so directly. But we are in a palace, and I am the Princess Imperial. What does your name mean? She grins. Her tusks are huge. My parents were soldiers. Soldiers know mythology, too. Beloved, page 5. I am seven years old. We are at the Brunth Bloodbath, watching the games. Gladiators strive atop live whales drowning in a sea of wine. The defending champion, Ulurunth, pilots a whale named Denouncer from a cage of iron. Afterwards, we will see the whales rendered down, their blubber turned into candles, their hearts and sweetbreads auctioned off. My father explains to me how the rite of proving predates all written cabal history, how it was illustrated in the deep caves where ancient females scraped the rocks with their tusks to make the first art. The challenging gladiator's name is Gaul. He is an outcast, as low as a slave, but he is mighty. My father admires him. I was a slave once, he tells me. He only speaks so openly when we are alone together, as if he's talking to himself. I was utterly under the control of the Praetorate, I was Prince-Designate 
and it was my job to promise a brighter future while they made their miserable progress. The empress before me was so old that her whole body was turning to bone. That's what happens to us, you know. If we live too long, in ancient days, those who ossified would be honored as statues and carried about the herdlands to share their final wisdom. Her ruling days were coming to a close, but the praetorate, those canny slave mongers, they wanted her to remain on the throne so they could avoid the chaos of a succession. They put her on a ship modeled after a land whale, its mouth was a scoop so that it would never have to stop to refuel. They accelerated it to the edge of light and flew it in an endless procession around our worlds, so that the empress, fossilized in slow time, would never die. So that I would never assume the throne. What happened to the old empress? I ask. Oh, she took her own life, I think. Who could go on living that way? Is that what happened to my mother? Patient Gaul makes his move. He leaps between whales, hurls Ulurun off the top of her whale's control cage. She plunges 16 meters and vanishes into the denouncer's navel. The crowd roars. By Acrius, the announcer screams. She is into the haft. She is stuck in the whale's belly button. He has killed her. He has won the bell. My jubilant father leaves me in a box and goes down to meet this Gaul. I envy the gladiator who consumes my father's attention. I resolve to meet him myself. Much later in my life, I will learn that the females who carved the first art in those caves were scraping lithium from the rock. It was a folk remedy for dark moods. Beloved, page 6. I am 38 years old. I drown in the cockpit of my ship. Pressure gel surrounds and fills me. Tiny implanted pumps circulate the gel through my lungs and sinuses, through all the empty spaces of my body, so that I am one contiguous, equally dense mass without difference inside me, so that there are no weak places which can break and crush. For the first time, I truly understand the Evocate General and the reason she fears my father's reforms. They create differences. Differences can be points of failure. My fighter accelerates at 30 felt gravities, down through the shrieking ionosphere of a gas giant across the face of the storms below. The Sindhu Escadrille frees from Idol to Lull, and I pursue. It is the cruiser's job to run the marathon, and the fighter's job to make the final sprint to interception. Our harrowers are not the nimble Sindhu fighters. Ours are heavy missile sleds, built for our tough anatomies and roaring engines, booming ahead of the cruisers to release their payloads. It is risky. Chase your prey too far before weapons release and you will be stranded on an unavoidable intercept factor, damned by the kinematics to plunge through the Sindhu formation, clawing out with guns and CIWS, trying to survive your suicidal plummet through the foes bloodied by your missile strike. Under the strain, my wingman's aorta shears off his heart. I am stronger. I wait, crushed by the acceleration of my own ship's haste, until my missile signal there in the 90% bracket. I fire. The Sindhu answers with jamming, with decoys, with interceptors, with the final close in fire of their guns. They answer well. Six little pinpricks of white light 
Six kills. Another three survive. Three against one, and no Delta V left to maneuver. I am doomed. I go in grim and laughing. The Adial Talol recovers me two days later. I spill exhausted from my drained-out cockpit into the arms of waiting medics. They try to hustle me to the emergency baths. I bar them away. I rise to my feet. I roar to the gathered deck crew. All nine. All mine. And they roar with me, not adulation for the Princess Imperial, but love for their new ace. Beloved. Pages 7 and 8. I am 35. It is later that same night of my homecoming. Molly and Molly says my father has just finished his fifth tub of polk and unbuttoned his imperial raiment. In the days of the Praetorate, public intoxication carried the death penalty. Now my father dances among the miniature fleets, overturning two-meter models of doomsday weapons with the legions wish to build. He plays invisible drums with his hands, stomps his feet, and does the horns with his mouth. Ba-ba-ba, he roars, ba-ba-ba. Come on, come on, damn you. Will you not join in? Make a wonderful noise, ba-ba-ba. Stomp with me. Your imperial majesty, Molly Amali says, laughing brightly, looking furtively between my father and the icy evocate general. Amunarath has requested that we take a quiet moment to honor those soldiers far from the whole homeworld. Well, damn you, Amun, my father says cheerfully. I know what you're about. You want to drag your dolorous diligence into my house of joy. You want to remember it's you who makes it all happen. Your legions and your fleets. The Praetorate may be gone, but the Cabal is still a fighting empire, grim with the knowledge that all who came before us were swept away by the Dark Flood, and everyone who's not fighting on your front is a scavenger. Dead weight. Is that right? Your Imperial Majesty, the Evocate General says neutrally, I thought only of tradition. Oh, tradition is it, Praetorate tradition? Like your blood etching and your provings? Damn tradition. Tradition is how the old force the young to reenact their miseries. My father picks up a gigantic forked warship and looks through its central aperture at Umun Arath. Damn you. Can't you feel anything? Can't you live, Umun? I see how you prey on my daughter, you know. He snaps his jaws shut so suddenly there is a little thunder. Your daughter seems to me a fine pilot, Amunarath says. Oh, she seems fine to you, does she? My father's face bulges through the sun-devouring maw of a wooden prototype. The actual warship will dampen gravity with the lambda smoothing effect, so that its target star cannot hold itself together against the blast of its own heart. She meets with your approval? Then why, Amun? Do you haunt her? Why do you steal her from me and send her away to die in some crushing chasm as of a gas giant, shattered by Sindhu missiles, compressed by depths by the deep where the worms lurk? Isn't that what you say, Amun? In the heart of every gas giant, there is an abomination waiting to hatch. So why have you convinced my daughter, my own flesh? Everyone is absolutely silent, absolutely still. To go play in the grave womb of the worms, instead of being happy here on the homeworld in Torobottle, where she could share my joy. I should not speak, but I do. Father, I had a duty to the people to serve. Duty, duty. He hurls the model like an accusation. Sheotep moves as if he will leap on it and cover it with his body like a bomb. 
What you had was a voice whispering in your ear, a poison in your tea, a pox in your blanket, the lie that everything is giving value by its suffering and its strife. Everyone cowers before his shout, except Amun and me. I am shocked to find that I do not fear my father. I have listened to him cast off my own siblings. I have known him to murder beast I loved too well, but I am not afraid of him. This is what matters, he roars at Amun. Not your dire legions and their grinding progress. You only exist to allow this. This party. This is the point. Even the drums have stopped. Can't any of you have any fun, he bellows. I have heard quieter alarms in the simulator when I fell into the dark hydrogen depths. Can't any of you live? Am I the only one here who's not utterly deranged? The only reason we don't all kill ourselves is that we feel good. The only reason we do anything, anything at all, even breathing, is that it feels nice. That's the only way the universe has ever found to make existence tolerable. The only reason to exist is that fickle little quiver of reward the brain gives us for eating or drinking or dancing or working or freeing our people from the bedamned praetorate or loving our daughter. That's all that's worthwhile in life, stimulation of the three primary vagus nerves. And if our whole psyche weren't built on the need for that reward, what would we be? Five? Vex? Nothing, Cabal, I tell you. Nothing, Cabal. He flings his arms out to embrace us all. What's the point if we can't have fun? What other point could there be? He stares at me. He says as if, for my ears alone. I would have a thousand more young. If only I could have made you happy. Beloved, page 9. I am centuries old. The Scion Metaconcert bridges my mind to the other conspirators. Ansat conducts us from her Oxa machine replica, but it is Gaul whose basso thoughts resound in me. He is the clean break we need, the clean break I need, from the Praetorate and my father alike, the ghost premise who will resurrect our empire. All I have to do is play my part. But on that day, unbidden, a memory comes to me. It is not mine, it is not Amunarath's, because she never lets a stray thought slip. It is Gaul's. His fierce, acquisitive psyche wanders from its place. I see my father weeping. I hear my father confessing. And then Gaul. I felt nothing. Nothing at all. It was as if all the gray stillness of my old NUI had flocked from the days of the Praetorate and gathered in a murder above me, so that all the world's tastes and terrors were shut out by their wings. I was thronged by well-wishers, but I was alone, like grit at the center of a pearl. My consort tried with all her art and patience to rouse me, but I would not be roused. I was alone again, save for that one precious life now brooding in me. One. One out of all the lives we had tried to make. This one survivor. And I felt... Felt that if this daughter left me, if she went out of me and into the world, I would be nothing. Nothing. Utterly without sense of reason. When I gave birth to my daughter, my beautiful star, I felt the immovable pearl shatter around me. But ever since, I have feared that it will close again, and this time, I will not have a way to break it. What I sense in Gaul's memory of this moment is contempt. Contempt for a man who had everything and threw it all away in pursuit of mere sensation. But what I feel, for the first time in my life, is understanding. 
I understand my father all at once. I understand him. Beloved, pages 10 through 11. I am a few days older. I am on my knees before my father, and I mean to confess it all. I will portray the conspirators. I will reveal their motives, Ansat's warnings against the chalice worshippers within, the evocate general's wary eye on the enemy without, the consul's longing for his blossom days when the people knew their place and he still had his manhood, Ghost Primus Gaul's brave new world of martial discipline and full-spectrum dominance, the Adile's fear for his own survival, the Lictor's personal disgust and my... My star, my father says. He is a round silk splendor on the throne, a world unto himself. His nipples are like dark poisoned fruit bejeweled. I remember nothing of their taste. I don't suppose you've come home for good. Father, I say, I want to ask you something. He sips from a goblet an overturned bell better than 5,000 years old. Of course, of course. What did you want when you took the throne? Want, want, he beams at me. Now you're asking the right questions, not duty, but want. What I wanted, my star, was to make the world better for you. A piece of my heart wails to believe him, but I was not yet conceived. What did you want for yourself? Other than the chance to conceive you, my star? Well, he fishes from the edge of his throne, holds up something knobby and worn down. Very few cabal will ever see this. It is the imperial trinket, an ancient bone retrieved from the debris around a once radiant black hole. Scholars tell me, Keitel, that eons ago, a species lived around the deepness and built an engine to tap its polar jets, but something came upon them from the dark and killed them all. I know the tale, one of Evocate General's proofs that we must become mightier yet to survive. Of course you do. Now this bone is a predator. It feeds on the gap between what you have and what you want. Did you use it against the Praetorate? Yes. And do you know what I found? That you could not, because you wanted nothing. I was lost, Keitel, adrift in a fog, utterly unable to desire or need. All I could do was be. The bone has nothing to feed on if the wielder wants nothing. Yet ever since your birth reawakened me, Keitel, I have prized above all else the ability to want, the hunger to exist as more than mere existence. That is what I want now, to feel, to be more than just a being. What of my mother? Didn't you want her back? Oh, child, he looks into his wine and into his bone and begins to salivate with tears. This is how Cabal cry, passing the anguish from the brain to the bowel for digestion and expiation. She had to care for me when I was but a husk of a man. I was selfish, I was cold, I broke too much between us, and I cannot bear to hear him stumble any closer to grief. And she left, and then you found someone else, I quickly finish. Yes. I tried to find someone more appropriate to my station. It didn't work, but at least I still had my daughter. He folds the bone away. He smiles tenderly at me. And what is a daughter except the wish to have something to love? Beloved, page 12.
I am exactly that old when I realized my father, the Emperor Callus, is full of shit. The selfishness of it. The sheer calumny. To pretend that he did it all out of love for me. To insist that at the core of his festering psyche, there is one foundational trauma which explains him. I could not feel, so now I must feel everything. I could not want, so I am a creature of unbridled appetites. I could not love, so oh, my daughter, love me. I did it all because I was afraid to be sad. The notion that all this man's conquests and excesses could be explained by his deep fear of anhedonia is nothing but whale shit. It is bait he sets out for my heart. There will never be a moment when I understand my father. I already understand him. There will never be a final reconciliation. I am already reconciled. He is that he is. He was made by the Praetorate, and he made of it his empire. He made me, and now I must make something of myself. I already know my father. I know him because he has spent his whole life showing me who he is. The universe is not explained by the psychic terrain of a knowable few. The cosmos is not subject to the trite, inferior struggle to heal or self-actualize or escape some old wound. The Praetorate did not fall because it depressed my father, but because he undermined their political control of the legions. Gaul did not rise because of his burning will to conquer, but because he was the perfect plow for a revanchist consul and militarist evocate general to throw their might behind. The Sindhu do not rebel because their soaring need for freedom, but because we exploit their worlds for fusion fuel and antimatter. Antzat does not fear scion emancipation because she loves slavery, but because her social class's power depends on the moderating position between cabal rulers and subject masses. And my father does not deserve to be overthrown because I am nothing to him except his wish for someone to love him more and more and more. He deserves to be overthrown because he is a bad emperor. So I am exactly that old when I close my mouth and say nothing at all of the coup to come. The weak wish for something to love them. They wish with the hunger of a whale to be loved and their need grows in proportion to that hunger. The strong work to be worthy of love. I will not be weak. Beloved, page 13. I am as old as I have ever been when I recorded these memories. Torah bottle is lost, fallen not to the frontier threats Amunorath obsessed over, but to the dark gate of her own obsession. Gaul is gone, consumed by the god he sought to usurp. Adil Amali and Lictor Sheotet are dead. Claimed by the same assassins Callus now sends for me. He even had his favorite tea seller murdered. Callus is no longer my father. As I write this, I am playing a little game that my troops love. We draw up imaginary legions from rosters of real maniples and centuries. The performances of those units in reality determines the success of the imaginary legion. I play this game under a private name, play it very well despite fierce competition. The legionaries joke that losing the homeworld was worth it just to shake up the game. Morale is high. Callus could not have played this game because he values nothing except himself. In the end, this selfishness will destroy him. He preaches of a contracting universe, with himself at the center. 
a glorious tide of night that will reveal his grandeur as the final fixed axis of it all. But the moment will come when he sees that he is not at the pole, that he is off the edge, and the dark is rushing over him, and then he will be undone. Whether or not I am there to see it makes no difference. I have people to lead. Bitter. Pages 1 through 2. It was a small ship, and by hope more than reality, a quiet one. She had intended it for just herself, and perhaps Anna, if things went well this time around. Elsie could deal with the chaos that her little sister injected into her life. But today, chaos took the form of a curious ghost, not grasping the concept of keeping things in their proper place. Toki, Elsie sighed, bringing the phase couplers back into their labeled bin and securing it. You cannot just rifle through my workbench. Some of this equipment is dangerous. I checked the labels very carefully, Miss Bray. The ghost poked her gleaming eye out from under a spare length of photovoltaic cloth. Capacitors, couplers, and oscillators decorated her shell in a tasteful pattern. But I needed new components. You took apart my old shell. Because your old shell was made from unstable nanomachines, it could have eaten you. Well, perhaps, but I still can't float around. She lowers her tone to a scandalous whisper. Naked. Elsie supposed it made sense, and sighed again. Modesty shouldn't mean that much to metal skin, but she still wore clothing centuries after her own exoconversion. Many days her own presentation, her emotions, her volume, her gestures, and yes, even her clothing was the fulcrum on which her self-control pivoted. You still shouldn't make a mess of other people's things, she finally relented. I made these parts for repairs. I only took the broken things. Toki spun in front of a porthole, admiring her reflection. You don't seem to like the type of... to collect broken things. Elsie prepared to double down, but her train of thought derailed as she looked up to see her surreal alien passenger slither its way into the compartment. Cutting through the air with a bait of fish's grace, the alien examined Toki's scrap and parts with six glittering eyes. Elsie felt wonder and discomfort creep into her as she watched. The alien, the fish, for lack of a better word, had lived alone on that abandoned Ishtar space station beyond Uranus for who knew how long before Toki found it. And Elsie, in time, discovered Toki. Elsie assumed a human had brought the fish. After all, the station had shown signs of habitation in the last decade or so by some human, or at least close enough to it. The uncertainty aided her, because she knew everything about the future. Her fate demanded understanding all possible influences of the coming conflict. She convinced herself that only victory could break her free of these hellish time loops, whether that meant the grand victory against the Pyramid Fleet or the personal victory of saving her sister, she wasn't sure. But uncertainty, that was the fly in her ointment, and she was certain of nothing that came to Toki's strange friend. Elsie sat and the tension in her servos began to slacken. Exos didn't breathe, but a long exhale was as good for the mechanical soul as the organic. An electronic tittering brought her back into the moment. Toki swiped her fins up, and the eel-like alien followed her movements, turning a loop in the air. The ghost swept her gaze back and forth, and again, the creature followed, rolling left, then right. A thought suddenly occurred to Elsie. Toki... Did you teach your friend these tricks? 
Toki turned a barrel roll and laughed as her companion followed. No, it just knew all this when I found it. Leaning in close, Elsie reached toward the fish, and the creature dutifully slid into her palm. She turned the form over, then again, digital eyes scanning every detail of the silicate body below the head. She found a word etched in the same careful hand that had inscribed the destroyed weapon they'd found near the creature's nest. Hookah. Like the fairy? Is that the name of your species? I think it's a lovely name, Toki offered. Hookah only rubbed its face into Elsie's waiting hand, demanding attention. You were a pet. Elsie gave the shiny carapace a scratch, triggering a wave of... purrs? Puka's six eyes focused independently up at her and glittered. Someone taught you those tricks and then left you. Isolation. Isolation. Do not mourn your sister's abandonment, Elizabeth. They are small minds. I know grandfather's words make sense, but that doesn't state the hollowness gnawing inside my chest. I set the stylus down, plant my hands against the desk, and take a long, ragged breath of recycled air to silence the scream I need to unleash. The feeling passes. I retrieve the tool and return to business as usual in the lonely European lab. I am in control, even though I know that changes nothing. Elsie gasped and stared. Did someone teach you that trick too? Puka tilted its round eyes clockwise, then counter. Bitter. Pages 3 through 4. Without Toki and her off-key humming, the ship felt emptier. Puka had chosen to stay behind, had chosen Elsie, for reasons that escaped her. The alien's background noise filled in some of the gaps left in Toki's absence, but it didn't seem enough to overcome the lonely thrum and ring of the engines. Get out of that, fish! It was remarkable how quickly the alien became obnoxious, especially when upending Toki's treasure canister the minute Elsie left the curious beast unattended. She shooed the slithering creature away and... Loss. I still know my partner is out there. I can feel us moving away from them. Toki comments. I'm an idiot for expecting a ghost to stay anywhere near the Guardian's side for long, but the stop on Titan to replenish the deuterium tank was supposed to be simple. Toki's goodbye blindsides. Stop that, Elsie exclaimed and shoved Puka aside to tidy the mess once again. Each etched diode and bit of cowling landed harder than necessary in the old ration canister. Puka retreated to one of the upper lockers and huffed with sounds that could have been sadness or anger. My head is messed up enough without you digging around in there to win an argument. She felt silly lecturing an alien being like Mother once lectured her Pomeranian. If the creature understood, the six glassy eyes betrayed nothing. Elsie pressed the tension lid closed again. I'm sorry. Loneliness. Loneliness. You can't make jewelry jewelry with them them or give them to friends. friends. Toki, I don't want your garbage. garbage. I just don't want you to feel bad. bad. Where I'm going will be very very dangerous. dangerous. You leaving is best for both of us. I understand why you need to say that. that. Puka chirped, now pushing into Elsie's hands and turned its gaze back to Toki's treasure canister. Fondness. I turn over the bolt stop in my hands again. The laser-carved loops and swirls lend the ceramic and organic grace. I'll admit it. You're pretty good at this, you little troublemaker. It cooed and coiled. Guilt. Toki refuses to speak, and maybe, I realize, I deserve it this time. No, fish. You need to... 
Rejection. No. Il torcho mafil osi. Elsie, say it's not you. Say it's not. Say he hasn't locked you up in that walking lazaretto to die. I feel my mother's horror at the sight of me as a pressure, a stage instruction more than an emotion. Mom, mom, please. Je vais bien. Je ne suis pas comme mon père. Inshallah. Stop. Elsie's legs gave out and her body shook there on the floor where she landed hard. Puka shrieked and wrapped itself behind the discarded tin of treasures. How dare you! She struggled to her feet and the world spun. With three gentle steps, she felt her vision settle, felt the cool, firm steel of the deck beneath her, and the gentle thrum of the ship's vibration up through her ankles, her knees, and into her chest. And in the wake of peace, the sorrow bubbled up. Bitter. Page 5. Elsie wasn't sure how long she had cried. The dry mechanical sob of her inorganic frame were timeless, a mimeograph of relief, but in the end, she found herself propped up back against the bulkhead and letting the thrum of the ship serve as her ersatz heartbeat. Her companion wiggled under her arms and looked up. She sensed a faintness, a wisp of connection, like smoke in her peripheral vision. Concern. Last drops of rain passed by, but I don't notice anything beyond the ladybug toppled by the rain spout. The stillness of it, as Willa takes it in her hand. Finally, it kicks and writes itself. I squeal. Elsie focused. I thought you were dredging these up, but you're not, are you? She considered her own question and rubbed the creature's cheek, what passed for a cheek, with her thumb. She lifted Puka to her face. Something pressed at her mind, beyond the creature's vague look of confusion. A familiar contour. Emotion, begging for context. Satisfaction. 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 The sparrow's, the sparrow's engine, engine shudders and spews steam before finally buzzing to life. It drifts lazily off the blocks, and I can't stop smiling, even though I know it's the goofiest grin. You're shaping whatever you feel, she mused, and her mind drifted back to warm beaches with Willa and Alton their tiny footsteps slowly filling the saline from the warm, wet sand. Nature abhors a vacuum, and my heart fills it up. That could be dangerous, she realized. Puka chittered happily as Elsie began stroking the silicate head. But you wouldn't be someone's pet if you were dangerous, would you? Elsie's mind wandered back to the lonely space station where she found the curious creature of the enormous human handprint left behind in the titanic rifle that Toki had scavenged to dress herself. So why does the person who needs a giant gun also keep a little psychic fish that makes you feel memories? Bitter. Pages 6 through 7. Elsie planted her feet apart again and braced herself. One more time. Evolution kit-bashed the human mind, rebuilding arboreal rodents foraging for nuts into screaming tailless apes at the helms of starships. But for all the miracles it performed, the Pleistocene hardware of the brain was bound by its physical limits. Memories were nothing but pathways of nerve impulses stored as electric signals dancing across them in recall, and atrophied by neglect. Even without the considerations of size, the sapient mind could only think about so much in a given day, limiting the span of human experience to perhaps a few hundred years. 
The dirty secret of those who survived the collapse is that none of them, from drunken Exo to Celestial Queen, remembered every detail. They remembered moments, minutes, hours, whatever left deep enough scars that they couldn't help but run their fingers out of their mind across them every morning. Neglect rendered everything in between weeks, years, decades into murky depths explored only by bare hooks on the thinnest emotional filaments. Elsie's time loops compounded the problem. Her head locked away in order of magnitude more memories than any living human, and each plunge backward through causality blurred those details. Like jolting from a night terror, only the final moments stood out in sharp relief each time she restarted. Untangling the mess of cause and effect, sorting where she went right and what needed to change, it ate away at her precious few decades before everything collapsed and she would begin the process anew. Any tool that might let her trawl memories from the lost place, even at random, was a tool worth mastering. Elsie set her feet apart and let the ship's thrum rise through her body again. They had dabbled with a dozen emotions that helped her dive into the previous loops, through lines on which to string lost context. She found that emotions sparked by failure, despair, rage, fear, were best for the work, and the worst for her. She thought back to the memory that no amount of resets could hope to scrub. Her first memory as an exo. A frail old man unwound like a blanket of organic human chaos laid in tiny lines by precise mechanical hands and of her own overriding need to end the brutality before she understood she was saving the real monster. Dread filled her. Her companion tasted it and fed it back over and over one loop of memory after another. Despair. Despair. So this is the honor of the braze, Zavala spits at me. His working hand reaches for Targe, reaches for a connection to his god, even after it abandoned him. The ghost lies cold and dark. Cade was right to put a bullet through Anna. I only wish I'd let him end you too. We're past bravado, I explained as fire dies in my soul. There's only one step left before this ends. And what is that, stranger? I placed the rifle barrel to his forehead. Mercy. Nothing. Despair. Despair. I can't let you stop us, Ikora declares with a chill that rocks even me. I feel the void shudder in my chest, spilling fluids and triggering dozens of status alarms. Not when we're this close. No. Despair. What have you done? I scream as Marasov's body drops lifelessly to the ground. Elsie, listen to me. This was necessary. The darkness cannot thrive while believers of the light remain. There's a world beyond this conflict. Let's go there together, Anna pleads. This is not the way, I cry, and ready my stasis. Stasis. It had a name. The power she felt herself wielding in lives long past. The knife that could cut the darkness. Her mind began to spin, and Elsie consciously planted herself in the present once more. Her senses registered the hydrocarbon lubricants and distinctive thial polymers of ship life. She pushed away the shape of concern Puka pressed into her soul before it could replace this filament that she'd hunted for. Again. Bitter. Page 8. But how did I learn stasis? Elsie cupped her curious pet. It blinked erratically. One eye, then three, then two. The fish wanted to help, even if it didn't understand the what or how of it. Elsie tried to conjure up the feelings behind her earlier vision, the desperation and fear and loathing in the moments before killing her own sister. They brought her secrets and shames and timelines best left forgotten, but no closer to stasis. Puka slithered under her chin, flicking and cooing. You were trained for this kind of work, weren't you? 
Some kind of, she shrugged for a clever analogy, field therapist? Trained to soothe, maybe work with exposure therapy? She stroked absentmindedly at Puka's smooth body, losing herself in possibility the way she hadn't let herself since the European think tank. Plunging people into their nightmares again and again must be. Nightmare. Nightmare. I was a fool to ever place my trust in you, Eris. The nightmare of Ariana Three Bellows. You watched the hive unmake us one by one, and then you bowed to their god to save your own flesh. Indecision grips Eris more and as her doubts overwhelm her, so I dig deep and focus. The bitter alkaloid sensation creeps up my throat. I call out my stasis and drive it across the battlefield, entombing the haunting vision. Her detractor paralyzed. Eris turns back to me with a shred of control. It seems I am not the only one carrying secrets. We'll discuss it later, I promise. First, we need to get out of. Elsie jerked back to the present. The memory of bitter, inorganic salts lingered in the back of her mouth. Puka shivered against her chest, but she probed at the creature again, losing herself in the sensation. Her companion pressed the shape of the lingering flavor into her heart, and it rushed to fill the indentation. Alkaloid. I let the sensation fade and noticed the acerbic tightness in my chest fade as well. Now you try. Eris breathes, then draws out a fragment of stasis from the shard. With a gesture, she redirects the energy outward, and a thin spire of crystal erupts from the lunar regolith. Quick study, I comment. It is not so dissimilar to how I control the hive magics. This stasis of yours is less refined, but considerably more... She pauses to think. Overt. Elsie tried to probe the memory of sensation again, but Puka dozed quietly. She let herself nap there against the deck with Puka and her memories opened of their own accord. She dreamed of blue light falling like rain and tearing the last city to flinders. Bitter, pages nine through 10. Tickling the sleeping dragon's tail, bygone scientists had called it, Elsie planned to delicately probe the apocalyptic edges and prayed they wouldn't awaken it. Alkaloid. For just a moment, it all threatens to run away with me, but I choke back the tears and bury them deep. Without the cloud of emotions, blipping sideways from Saint-14's grenade is second nature. I whip a spike of stasis past his head and pierce Geppetto. The ghost shrieks as it falls to the ground and Saint's attention breaks just long enough to snare him in a timeless prison. I bury it deeper. Focus. My love, Osiris charges, hurling a gout of solar to herd me left. I dive right into the flames. There is no pain, no heat. I fix my sights on this combatant's foreign shore and nothing else. Osiris is a barrier to that journey, and so I drive that control deep into his heart. I feel the stasis vibrate, clinging off the warlock's light. I bury the feeling, focus, but the echo doesn't stop. Numb stillness tickles my fingers and toes as hoarfrost begins to consume me. I push down the misery, the isolation. Focus, Focus. Only, maintain. only maintain. It creeps up, creeps and I feel the radiolaria in me seize. Not the timeline she needed, she realized. Elsie shook off the memory of an infinitely long and short decade spent in that icy prison. She found her feet, grounded herself in the thrum of engines before turning once more to her strange companion. She remembered licking her lips, long ago when she had them, and called that memory back along the acerbic taste of stasis. Alkaloid. I put another round through the motionless hydra. It shatters like glass. I know this, I mutter, picking up a broken spike and watching it sublimate into ether. 
I've no doubt, Osiris responds. His rhyme-caked hands crackle and pop. I saw glimpses of you wielding this power during my time in the infinite forest. It is what drove me to seek it out here after Oryx corrupted Sagira. It proved a simple skill. He continues as the pyramid slides and shifts to create a hallway. I am already well practiced in manifesting my will, no matter the obstacles. The emotional thread unraveled in a storm of dry lecture, and the link dissolved. With barely a moment to steady herself, Elsie plunged into the acerbic sensation again. Alkaloid. This is the power that has made its home in your heart before. Aramis strokes my cheek, and I can feel the chill through insensate steel and ceramic. You must open yourself to it, lure it with honeyed words, and once it is within your grasp, coil around it and crush its will with your own. I thrust my hands against the crux again and push aside the pain. There is no whine or crack of metal shearing in absolute zero. There is only what needs doing. Puka broke the link as Elsie began screaming. It took another hour of listening to the ship around her, losing herself in the here and now before she could try again. Alkaloid. My first bolt of stasis halts the taken midway through his charge. Excellent, Mara comments. You know the stance like you were born to do it. Again. She parts her hands and calls three more of her taken servants to the fight. My mind rushes to the crux once more, and I fill my every sense with it, shutting out the taste, smell, feel, sound of the real world in favor of what I need. The Crux Bitter Page 11 Elsie felt the nightmare manifest long before she saw it. The European Pyramid pressed shapes into our heart the same way Puka could, but the molds it cast were deeper and more urgent. The worst parts of her soul rushed to fill the hollow. Still not tired of this, Elizabeth? Red mist congealed into Anna's form. The wound in her ethereal chest dripped and smoldered. You're not real. All that mattered was the crux. Elsie's visions have revealed the how. All she needed now was enough substance in her present time to flesh out the buried muscle memory. I'm more real than the carbon copy sister you think you'll save this time. The nightmare's wound snaked up to manifest a fractured skull. How many dead Annas am I made from? Ten? Twelve? Are we counting all of them, or just the ones you killed personally? Breaking the nightmare's bond was easier than it should have been. The pyramid's gift for constructing this revenant was a grand imitation of Puka's gift. Elsie felt like any link to her sister, even her own self-loathing wearing an Anastasia mask, should have been harder to unravel. The nightmare dissolved back into warm mist. She took a moment to feel Puka shiver beneath her cloak, appreciating the tactile feeling. It's okay, she comforted. The pyramid slid doors and realigned hallways, trying to keep her from its beating heart. It knew she was here too early this time. She'd walked these halls time and time again to pull stasis from the crux like an Excalibur of personal hell. But always, someone else found it first. Always, they taught her the secret she already knew. Always, they fell to the seductive whispers of the other side and she stood as the lone soul uncorrupted by the exposure. Or at least, she was the only one who recalled feeling guilt for allowing it. Puka led the way. It could sniff out the stagnant pools of darkness as easily as it could root out Elsie's buried emotions. Trauma smelled the same, whether it was in the heart or hanging in the air, Elsie supposed. 
Dream logic and half-forgotten memories made for a passable map in Elsie's mind, and despite the structure's efforts, she found her way to the pyramid's heart and the empty plinth where the crux should have stood. Finally ahead of the game, and still too late. Bitter. Page 12. Shock had taken hold, and Elsie wasn't sure how long she'd spent staring into the shadows. The gentle sound of tapping like steel rapping against stone guided her back to reality. When awareness finally crept from subconscious to conscious mind, she turned to watch Puka shove and roll an iron scrap across the floor. Is there anything you won't make into a toy, Puka? But Elsie felt the shadows grow long as she walked over to investigate. The scrap glistened wrong in her flashlight's beam. And as she bent down close, the iron, no, not iron, something not quite metal, was cold in a way no physical object could be. Bitter. Page 13. The crux was broken. Or maybe was never whole in the first place, in the way that solid matter should be. The shard that remained held darkness, just a fraction. But to someone who had spent a dozen hazy lifetimes mastering how to use darkness, it was an oasis and the endless expanse of light. She reached her will into the shard, and a part of her reflexively shuddered, awaiting a pain that never struck or a sound that was never heard. She pushed back against her mental recoil and touched the deeply familiar cold. It tickled and clawed and begged something intangible from her, but Elsie closed her mind to everything except her true purpose. In her heart of hearts, the wall of blue-tinged facets was already there. It only took concentration to make it a reality. Focus. Control. The will of the bright is the true fundamental force in the world. Grandfather in toes, pulling me upright. My twisted ankle screams, but I can stay silent. I can be a bray. Now walk. Her foot caught in place. A gleaming layer of stasis swallowed her heel, her foot, her leg. She couldn't lose control. Focus. It spread up and across her torso, consumed her shoulders. Not coldness, not numbness, just emptiness. Puka sat on her immobile hand, gazing at her and blinking erratically. Elsie was in control. A bray alone could master this. The stasis swallowed her head, and the moment stretched out forever. Too tight. 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 Oh, daughter. Oh, daughter. Mom, Mom squeezes me tight. tight. You can't make can't them make love them you, love inshallah. You, inshallah. You have to let go. The horror consumed her as easily as a stasis. She felt like a frightened child cast loose in the wind, alone. Every assertion of control met by a temper tantrum in the face of a hurricane. Inshallah, she half remembered her mother's words, and let go. The crystalline prison shattered. Bitter. Page 14. Elsie sat in the dim silence for she knew not how long. Puka wrapped itself around a mechanical arm and purred, but Elsie couldn't find the will to nuzzle back. Instead, she carefully wrapped the shard in her hood and tucked it securely into her pack. Words hadn't saved her, or her mother's faith. It was then that she realized stasis thrived off her need for rigid order. To fit foregone conclusions and scientific principles into the messy abstract of creation, and when she lost herself to purpose, Stasis happily consumed all she was. Only that briefest admission that the universe was outside her influence 
surrender broke her bonds. Stasis wasn't the sum total of darkness any more than Ark was light. It was an aspect, a shape, and a tool. Every sword was made from iron, but not all iron was swords. Stasis was a tool forged by control and focus, and to her shame, she couldn't imagine what else could spring forth if any other force in the cosmos drove her forward like that singular need for control. What other abilities, what shapes and tools could be forged by deference or compassion? What could she have done, she realized in dawning horror, if she loved and relied on Anna beyond the way she needed to control Anna? Dread crawled up her spine, but she knew what she needed. Allies beyond her control. Allies who were versed in darkness as well as light, who could take her secrets of stasis to the light bearers at large, teach a hundred or a thousand souls to forge iron into a sword, and just maybe, one will figure out how to make a plowshare too. She'd never tried it before. It was something new. And perhaps Anna needed to know there was a place for her saved on Elsie's ship. And that concludes the Lightfall Collector Edition uh, lore books. Um, Loose Cannon hopes you enjoyed it. And if this is your first time checking us out, we do a show. You know, it's it's not it's not just this. Um, we we talk about the lore, we get into it, and we really get off topic as well. Because we just try to have a, a good time while talking about lore. And we hope that you can have a good time just tuning in. So if you want to find more of us, you can find us on Twitter at Loose Cannon Show. And on our Twitter, we have a link tree that brings you everywhere. Uh, bye, everybody. <laughs>